Morning, Crosswalk. How we doing? We good? Holiday season for some of us. We welcome our college students home. If you are home from the grueling work of bettering yourself, um, we are excited to have you here. What a difference a week makes. Last week, cold, dark, rainy, windy. Today, windy, rainy. No, not rainy. Windy. There was another one. Cold. Yeah, it was cold. But anyway, beautiful outside. It's great to have you here. I hope this next week uh, promises to give you some great family time, hopefully some uh, extra food on the table, uh, a chance to just enjoy, enjoy football, board games, whatever it is. I don't know. Is there, are there any Black Friday people in the room where you actually go out? You are crazy people. I can't think of anything I need bad enough to go and have to, you know, navigate whatever happens on that day. My family loves to go. Not, not my immediate family in my house, but my extended McCoy family loves to go. It just, it's just crazy. You ever go down by Woodburn Outlets on, on Black Friday? There's like miles and miles of people trying to get into that place. Some people actually get out of their car on the freeway, cross over and get, it's just crazy. Don't do that. But anyway, uh, hey, some quick family news before we jump in today's teaching. Uh, and that is, you know, we, we talked some last week if you were here, but we are at the end of the year and people are thinking about those gift uh, giving opportunities and are asking questions about what does Crosswalk need and where are we at and what's going on. Um, like, first of all, we say this all the time, but it truly does blow, blow me away how incredibly generous our community is. You guys step up, and in a church that's just two years old, um, like, like we've been able to do amazing, incredible things. And in those two years, as we have planted this church, now as we seek to dig our root, roots down deep, there's a few priorities on our list. Our leaders are currently in a season of prayer over where God is leading us to dig down into even deeper. But here's our three priorities. Our priorities are making whatever, doing whatever we can to continue to improve the worship experience here in this room because this is the most attended opportunity we have a week. This is our most evangelistic, our most community-oriented event. We wanna make it even better. So there's equipment and support, personnel, different things like that that we're dreaming up. Two, we also wanna make sure that we continue to consider how we deepen our connection to each other and to God. We've got some cool things coming up in the crosswalk network of churches, um, but we also want to think and wrestle with what does that mean here? And of course, we always want to make sure we are a force for good in our community. As we look at some of those things, we look at a price tag jumping into the end of the year with a budget that will also propel us into next year. We're shooting for $60,000, which is crazy for me to say because I have friends that pastor churches where that's their budget for the year. Um, of course, they don't you know, lease a building, so that's a little different. But still, it's a crazy ask, but we have asked it before, and this community has come through. So I, we know God is going to use us all to answer that call, and we're looking forward to seeing what happens. But thank you in advance for praying through what that means for you. So we are in week four of our series called Uncomfortable, with today looking at Uncomfortable Unity. We spent our first week talking about uncomfortable people, and then we went into uncomfortable worship. And last week, Pastor Uriel talked about uncomfortable diversity and the beauty and the challenge of knowing another person and then allowing yourself to be truly known. But this week, it's about unity. And we, we can't speak about unity without contrasting it with, with what it often gets confused for, which is uniformity, right? Unity can be defined as being together with or at one with someone or something in heart and spirit. Unity is an internal thing. 
Uniformity, on the other hand, is often a state or condition of sameness in which everything is similar or homogenous. Uniformity is often forced from the outside. So uh, I was thinking about just a simple illustration to kind of get us into it, and I, I thought about the first time that I ever flew on, uh, in first class. Now, I don't know if you've had that privilege, you know, you lesser people. Um, but uh, no, look, I was a college student. I so didn't belong in first class. I snuck in there um, and, and I tried to be uniformed. I tried to make them think that I belonged, right? And so I had slacks and a dress shirt on. Yes, I own a dress shirt. Um, and, uh, and I was trying to fit in and I was trying to not be surprised by how the flight attendants treat the first class people as opposed to like those other people in the back of the plane. Um, you know, so when I sat down in my seat and I was barely there a few seconds and the flight attendant came and asked me if I wanted something to drink, I didn't freak out. I pretended like that was normal. And I just said, yeah, uh, I'll have an apple juice. Apple juice is my, my drink of choice on an airplane. <laughs> it's an apple juice. I know, I'm a high roller. And, um, and then, uh, you know, and then I remember they, they come out and they've got these tongs, you know, halfway through the flight with this white ball and I see them pass it to somebody and I'm watching them. What in the world is that? And they unfold it and it's a hot towel and they do this thing. So of course I just do this thing like I've done it a million times before, um, you know? And so I thought I fit in well, I was uniformed, I belonged. And then at the end of the flight, the flight attendant came up to me and said, first time in first class, huh? <laughs> y- y- yes. Yes, thank you. But that's uniformity, right? Um, yeah, uniformity and unity are very different, which we'll dive into more soon. But I, when I think of unity, especially in the spiritual sense, we can't talk about unity without talking about the prayer from Jesus. On the night uh, before Jesus' crucifixion, John records Jesus' last words to his disciples. And since Jesus knows he's going to die, these are his dying words. And in your dying words, you are saying that which matters most, that which, which is heaviest on your heart. And as Jesus is preparing for the awfulness ahead, he goes into some prayers. And he prays for himself that he would glorify God and what he was about to go through. He prays for the disciples that they would have protection. And then he prays for you and for me. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. All who will ever believe in him through their message is you and me. On the night before Jesus was about to go through the most horrific physical pain a person could imagine and the most superhuman spiritual pain, he thought of us. He thought of us in this room 2,000 years later. He thought of who we'd be with and what we'd be celebrating and what we'd be struggling with. He thought about us in those dying words. And he thought so much about us that he goes on to say, he says, I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. Now, John is going to use the Greek word for the uh, word one here, hen. He's going to use that six times in quoting Jesus' prayer. And Jesus is going to allude to one or the idea of unity five other times without using the word here. So Jesus is being very clear that unity or oneness is important to him. And he prays for unity because he knows it won't be easy. It will be a struggle. There's always something 
risking to tear us apart, right? And so it's uncomfortable to try to lean in and practice unity. But he goes on to say that this unity or oneness will help humanity believe that God sent Jesus to the world. Jesus goes on and says, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. This unity will not only let the world know that God sent Jesus, but also that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. This connects with something Jesus shared with the disciples earlier in the night, a verse that we quote on a regular basis here at Crosswalk, when Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Love we talk about often, right? Love is a sign that we are following Jesus. How are you and I loving well? But we don't talk about unity with the same kind of intensity. But it seems like in Jesus' mind, the world will know we follow him by our love and by our unity. So we have a few questions to ask. Why is unity so important to God? How exactly does unity differ from uniformity? And how do you and I practice living in unity so that the world may know that God sent Jesus, but also that God loves each of us as much as God loves Jesus? So the first question is, why is unity so important to God and Jesus? Unity matters to God because like love, unity is the essence of who God is. God has always been three beings in one, one in three, Father, Son, Spirit. They have since forever enjoyed a divine dance or what we call the perichoresis. This perichoresis is where they have no one's in the center. They're all dancing around and celebrating one another. And the only time this relationship was ever changed or different was when Jesus was on the cross and he died. That relationship was severed for that amount of time. It's amazing and crazy to think about. He was willing to go through that for us. But other than that, this dance has always existed, will always exist. And God invites us to join in the dance, to be united to him, to them, in one fluid moment. So our unity matters to God because unity is who God is. And what's the difference between unity and uniformity? We talked about it a little bit, but according to the website differencebetween.com, it says this. It says, the key difference between unity and uniformity is their acceptance of differences. When there is unity, people tend to tolerate and accept differences, but uniformity applies that everyone is alike, so there is no room for differences. Now, I would challenge this definition in one word. It says people tend to, in unity, tolerate and accept differences. I feel like in true spiritual unity, it's not about tolerating implies the idea of just having to put up with it, but you don't really like it. But unity in a spiritual sense is about celebrating those differences. But rest assured, unity is harder than uniformity. In uniformity, it is clear how to belong and how not to belong how to behave and how not to behave, what is right, what is wrong. Um, and we don't have to guess in uniformity. There are no gray areas in uniformity. Things are black or white, period. Uniformity often involves force, demanding the people around you to fall in line or else risk excommunication or alienation. 
Now, in full transparency, the leader of the Adventist World Church recently gave a message where he stood up and said to other leaders in the church, pastors, teachers, and so on, that if we don't believe the doctrines exactly the way they believe the doctrines, if we don't, um, if, if it's not just uh, doctrines, if we interpret things differently, if we have different personal convictions, then we should resign our positions. That is uniformity. That is driven by fear, fear of losing control of said organization. Now, it would be easy to demonize people that are enforcing or demanding uniformity, but remember, they need Jesus as much as we need Jesus. And our call to love extends to them as much as it extends to anyone else. And man, that is uncomfortable sometimes. And because I prefer to believe that people act on good intentions, then I choose to believe that the fear they are operating under is a fear of losing what they feel is unique, their unique calling and identity of our church. And that's understandable. But I don't think unity is something that's driven by organizations. I think unity comes from God to those who answer his call, which transcends our differences. But this unity is hard because it's not black and white. In unity, we can act differently, even believe differently. We, you know here at Crosswalk, our first value is belonging, which means that you can belong without believing what we believe. You belong the moment you drive into our parking lot, right? But that obviously can be tough at times. Um, but what unites us is our why. It's why Crosswalk can have campuses and, and groups around the country and around the world who are all united in our purpose, in our mission, in our vision, in our why we do what we do, which for Christians is rooted in our who. When we are united in Jesus, we celebrate God's beautiful and diverse creation, which we were designed to live within. It's a fascinating study I came across from Brene Brown, uh, who we've mentioned a lot lately, but, you know, like, it's Brene Brown. She's good. Um, so uh, uh, the study showed that in 1976, fewer than 25% of people lived in counties where the presidential election was won by a landslide. So what this means is people lived next door to and attended schools and worshiped with people who held different beliefs, Okay. She says we were more ideologically diverse compared to, in 2016, 80% lived in counties where the presidential election was won by a landslide. 80%. So this means most of us no longer live near people who are all that different from us in terms of political and social beliefs. Now that alone is fascinating, but what's even more fascinating is that she correlates that with another number. She says, in 1980, fewer than 20% of Americans reported feeling lonely. Whereas, in 2016, over 40% reported feeling lonely, and it currently sits at 52%. Um, so, now, granted, there are other factors that influence loneliness, like the negative effects of social media or the pandemic and these other kinds of things. But isn't it crazy that we seem to live theoretically by people who are more like us and yet we're more lonely than ever? It's so fascinating to me. Um, you know, and I, it causes me to think about the fact that a lack of diversity may lead to comfort for some, but comfort can also lead to atrophy. I love the proverb uh, that reads, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. 
The times in my life when I have felt most sharpened is when my own views are challenged or I'm speaking with someone from a different background and life experience. When I'm led into being uncomfortable, it's there where I find growth. So then we're left with asking the question, how do you and I practice living in unity with one another? Right? Um, It's clear that unity isn't easy. Professed Christians around the world have been fighting with one another for centuries, usually over behavior or doctrines. It's what happens when our own interests and egos and preferences get in the way of our faith. So how do we avoid these pitfalls? Well, there's at least three things I can think of to help us practice unity. The first one is that we surrender our way. All week as I was working on this, I couldn't get the old hymn out of my head. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. It's not some to Jesus, I surrender. And it's not a question, all to him I freely give. It is full and complete surrendering. He is to be my guiding principle of which I'm going to measure everything else I do. It's if, if, if what I'm doing and involved in is of Jesus, then I continue to lean in. If it is not of Jesus, then I have to let it go. We become united in who we are surrendered to. We become united in who we are surrendered to. And the metaphor from scripture uh, that Peter gives us is a good one. The apostle Peter wrote to us and said, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Now I know many of us know the principle behind a cornerstone now, right? But in masonry terms, the cornerstone is the first stone laid in a foundation that all the other stones are laid in reference to. All of the other stones depend on the cornerstone, which means that all of the other stones can't fulfill their purpose without the cornerstone. Without the cornerstone, the structure falls apart. So what or who is our cornerstone? What or who is our life set on, dependent upon? Are we dependent upon our circumstances? Are we dependent upon who sits in the White House? How many zeros there are in our bank account or a set of doctrines? Or are we dependent upon someone that transcends all these things? A cornerstone that will not be shaken. I've shared this before, but for the past 12 years, I've been a part of a ministry called The One Project, which is simple focus is to celebrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Um, And I believe that my work here with Crosswalk is an outgrowth of those conversations and that work in The One Project. But oddly enough, the intense focus on Jesus that we chose to take became one of the most controversial things in the Adventist church because, you know, you can't just talk about Jesus. (laughs) Let's be clear. There's a whole lot of things we got to talk about. Um, you know, and so at one point, uh, some leaders in the world church decided they needed to investigate us, I guess, to find out if we were Adventist enough. Um, and this investigation took five years. We're not really sure why it took five years, um, but you know, things at that level tend to operate slowly. And so it took a while. Um, but I remember that our very first uh, conversation we, we had with some of those leaders, uh, we sat in a room and, um, and, 
you know, my friends were there that are leaders in this ministry. And they said, they asked us, they said, well, do you guys think the Adventist church needs to recenter itself on Jesus? And then Pastor Tim Gillespie, our lead pastor for Crosswalk and the teaching pastor uh, for all of us, uh, uh, Tim Gillespie was the first to pipe up, which is pretty normal. Um, and, and, and Tim said, well, I don't understand the question, which is Gillespie for, I actually do understand the question, but I think it's stupid. <laughs> it's typically what he means. And then, uh, then he's also kind of alluding to, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a truth bomb on you that you're not quite ready for yet. Um, and so the next thing Tim says is Tim said, I have to recenter my life on Jesus every day. Why would my church be any different? Right? Yeah, absolutely. So we must be united in surrendering our way for the way of Jesus. We set our agenda aside for Jesus's agenda, and that can be really hard at times because it pushes us out of our comfort zone. But it does that for our own good. You see, Jesus' table of fellowship was incredibly diverse. He crossed racial boundaries, religious boundaries, cultural norms, all to show people who God really was and how God truly felt about each of them. Because of this, people's lives changed for the better, not out of force, not by uniformity, but out of supernatural love. In his book, a bigger table, John Pavlovitz speaks so well to this. It's a longer quote than what I normally share, but it's so good I had to pack it all in. He says, when we who claim faith come to people without any agenda other than to receive them as they are and to love them as they desire to be loved, they rest in that safety and they begin to be transformed without prodding from us. As we who already comprise the church recalibrate our hearts for a different purpose, we are beautifully altered too. When we treasure people as they are, we become less manipulative, we become better listeners, we are less prone to morality policing. Agenda-free community allows messiness and failure and regression in ways that are so rarely tolerated in the traditional church. Again, This is the table Christ sets over and over in the scriptures, the place of continual restoration, perennial communion, unending fellowship. You don't earn a spot there. You don't fail and then find yourself outside of it. This is the table Jesus sets. It is the table of second chances and 200th chances, the table of grace. There you don't ever lose your place and you are never finished. At the table, Jesus had wisdom to share, hard words to give, and purpose to call people to. But more than that, he had their humanity to affirm. He allowed them the dignity of being seen and heard and known. Imagine what it would look like if we oriented ourselves around that pursuit, if we had no other agenda than walking alongside people, sharing the view of God from where we stand, not needing them to see what we see or believe what we believe, but to encounter Jesus in our very flesh. So good. I love that. Jesus affirmed our humanity, allowed us the dignity of being seen, heard, and known. That's our call, friends. And when we live this way, the Jesus way, then we become something new, a new kind of humanity. 
Paul put it like this. He said, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Put on your new nature. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. I love Paul's metaphor of clothing yourself. When you get dressed in the morning, we're blessed enough to have choices, right? So what are we gonna put on today? Do I wear my black crosswalk t-shirt or do I wear my other black crosswalk t-shirt? I have choices. I have different ones, um, you know. Um, but in Paul's metaphor, which outfit am I gonna wear today? Am I going to put on greed, jealousy, anger, and contempt, or love, grace, peace, a generous and curious spirit? It is a daily choice to put on Christ, for he is the one who gives us the power to love, the power to forgive, the power to listen and be with those who are different from us. As Paul tells us, he says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now, oftentimes we miss the nuances of what Paul is actually saying here and the differences that he is speaking to. So let me put this in more modern language. It doesn't matter if you are an Israeli or a Palestinian gay or straight, a U.S. citizen or an illegal alien, a vegetarian or a carnivore, a Republican or a Democrat, whether you support the sentiment behind the statement black lives matter or blue lives or all lives, or if you're in the 1% or the none percent, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. This is the essence of the gospel message. It is a unifier, an equalizer, where a life of love and unity are the outcomes of a life surrendered to Christ. So to live in unity, we surrender our way, and we, as we practice that surrendering, we become something new, and then we seek to receive others as Christ receives us. There's a great chapter in the book of Romans that doesn't get talked about too much in the Adventist church, but it has to do with behaviors, and behaviors are often what gets used to determining, you know, who is in and who is out for uniformity, right? Do they dress like us, eat like us, worship like us? It's our litmus test. Um, in the early church of Paul, this was a big problem because there were Jewish people who had chosen to follow Christ as their savior. And then there were Gentile people, anyone who wasn't a Jew, who chose to follow Jesus. But they came from very different backgrounds. And the Jewish Christians were trying to force the Gentile Christians to live like they did, act like they did, worship like they did. Because to the Jews, their behaviors is what made them special set apart and holy. That was their understanding. But in this new life, our life since the cross of Christ, what makes us special and set apart and holy is Jesus. And uh, Paul goes in Romans 7, 14 and says this, 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. He goes on to say, May God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us it's God who gives us the ability to live in harmony, to join together in one voice. Then watch what Paul says next. He says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Notice the past tense. God has accepted you. So God asks you to accept others. And the word here used for accept, (coughs) excuse me, is the word proslambano. That's the Greek word. And it means literally to receive another person into your heart. Not to tolerate, not to put up with, but to receive them in your heart just as Christ has received you into his heart. This is opening the door of your heart to another person, another who may believe differently than you, act differently than you, make different choices, but one who you are called to receive and love in Christ, period. This is what we feel called to as a community crosswalk. How we live that out, that's the challenge. But one thing is for sure, we live it out surrendered to Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. We follow his way, his life, his teachings. We live out unity and love and when disagreements come or what we're doing sounds and looks different from someone else, if our core is Jesus and his love for all of us, then we trust in that and we keep moving. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. May we seek to live daily in his presence, to love and receive those he loves and receives, and to be so united with him in his church that one day a vast crowd of us, too great of a crowd to number, will gather with all the angels and together with one voice, we will roar as we sing, holy is the Lord. Friends, that is heaven and heaven starts now. Pray with me. Father God, you are more than we could ever possibly ask for or imagine. And you have created a world so beautifully diverse, so beautifully different in all of its ways it actually celebrates you each one of us reflects a part of your image and to get a better image of you we we have to be united we have to be together we have to make you our why so help us to surrender help us to cling to you the author and perfecter of our faith and help us seek to receive others the way that you have received us Father, this is our call, our call to love and our call to be united. May we do that to bring glory to you so that others will know that you sent Jesus into this world and that you love us as much as you love Jesus. Thank you for your love and your grace and your precious and holy and powerful and resurrected name 
the name of Jesus, we pray these things.